ंग How do they do it all? They take the road less traveled and that becomes a source of inspiration to everybody else. In this podcast, I want to acknowledge and thank our knowledge partners, the Society for Human Resources Management, which is the voice of everything which is important in the world of work. Our other knowledge partner is Tagd, that is T A G G D. a digital ready platform that makes talent acquisition on demand a reality and me i am abhijit badri i work with organizations and leaders on their leadership talent and culture this is just the subject of a book that i've recently written which is called dreamers and unicorns i also coach individuals who are navigating shifts in their career when aditya puri of hdfc bank was voted as the best banker in the world by the economist magazine I attributed the success of HDFC Bank to their vision which says we understand your world. Think about it. Being able to know and understand the consumer is really essential to business success but when it comes to money trust is vital. Now here is a company that aims to provide a financial product not to the urban Indian but to the next billion which is in the tier 2, tier 3 and tier 4 cities of India. To understand what drives them I spoke to Lizzie Chapman who is one of the three co-founders of the startup called Zest Money and let's find out more. Ladies and gentlemen I'm delighted to have in the studio Lizzie Chapman. Lizzie what a delight to have someone like you with us on the show of Dreamers and Unicorns season 2. Thank you so much. I love the intro. That's a uh, that's very unique. Not boring at all. I'm excited to talk about that some more. You know, one of the things uh, your traditional bio would say that uh, you along with your two other co-founders Priya, Ashish, uh, and you Lizzie, you started this company called Zest Money. Now, yep. what exactly does Zest Money do? Yes. So we're basically redefining the way credit works for the consumer in India and hopefully soon the world. Um we came from a background of working in banking and finance and realized that technology was drastically changing the way credit works all over the world, but that hadn't happened in India 5 years ago. So we were one of the first to launch what's now become an entire category. Uh today it's called Pay Later. in those days it was called EMI but basically we enable people to buy whatever they want and we finance that so we finance people's dreams we finance people getting what they want enjoying their life every day um in a way that banks and traditional lenders typically didn't do and couldn't do uh today we touch more people in india than any other digital fintech company um and soon we'll be yeah going around the world trying to deliver the same customer joy and delight uh to millions more people across asia Uh, how would you define the terms like dreamer or unicorn uh, <laughs> this for every guest so how would you define it 
Yeah, I don't know. I feel like unicorn has become a bit of a dirty word in the last one year, maybe. We work SoftBank fiasco. So we don't use that word as much anymore. And and actually, if we were going to try and be anything, it would be a decacorn. I think that's the new cool thing, right? So I probably prefer dreamer. And I think everybody, you know, should be a dreamer all the time. And I think the best entrepreneurs are very naturally dreamers. We take it a bit further, though. Dreamer sounds like, you know, it's not really happening yet. <laughs> we feel that we are also executing very much on our dreams. And, you know, something I say a lot, especially to, to young founders who are so proud of like a really innovative is that, you know, ideas are, are plentiful uh, and all entrepreneurs have millions of ideas. Every morning in the shower, I come up with some new idea. Uh, but execution is the tough bit. And especially in a market like India, I think, you know, just tireless execution operating day in day out is what breeds success um not not just dreaming sadly but you need the dream to be able to execute and you need the dream to be able to inspire everybody around you to execute and work hard every day that's why dreaming is so essential <laughs> you started by saying that india is a very uh, unique country that you know it's yeah. got its peculiarities of course we all know that you know india uh, the, in terms of per capita consumption numbers etc low i mean what are those sure. numbers that you are working with uh, yeah. tell me a little about that yeah so i mean the reason we picked india as our our launch market um apart from the fact we're we're all personally fascinated by this country uh but the reason we chose india as the market for zest is because credit penetration is really really pathetic considering how well banked we are as a population right so india is not an underbanked country everybody has a bank account uh debit card penetration is one of the highest in the world and with things like upi launching this is actually an incredibly digitally savvy consumer customers here do more digital transactions than many other parts of the world customers actually use more digital data than in most of the world i don't know if you know that but in 2015 we used to be you know quite pitiful in the ranking of digital data consumption and overnight we became number 2 to south korea thanks to we know who uh, geo um but it's it with all that backdrop it's quite shocking that we still have less than 3% of indians using credit cards it's about 30 million unique credit card customers in the country i grew up in the uk and almost as soon as you can walk and talk you're getting a credit card right credit cards are you know the way that everybody shops in the west And so our thesis is actually that it's not that you know we're sort of slow or India's backwards in terms of credit card consumption it's that credit cards are the wrong product for a market like India we're actually going to leapfrog that entire genre and what we believe is this is such a digitally savvy consumer and it's a consumer with such a high expectation of products and services now that we need much better products than the traditional finance world delivers right so we think that this is a brilliant brilliant market for really reinventing the way things are delivered and finance is the best example of that so this will be a leapfrog generation we think we'll go straight to completely digital products and um the indian consumer is ready so i think one of the biggest misconceptions about this market from within is that you know we're in some ways kind of lagging or wanting to catch up with say the US when it comes to technology and consumer behavior i believe indian consumers are way ahead way 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 ahead much more discerning 
much more sophisticated. I always give this example, but you know, if you go to London today and get on, you know, public transport, go on a bus, go on a train, everybody's reading a physical newspaper still, right? Go and get on a, a Mumbai local when they're open uh, or get on a bus in Bangalore. Nobody has physical anything. I mean, it's 100% digital now. Even even your taxi driver, right? He'll be on InShorts or one of these apps digitally digesting content. We are so much more advanced in the way that we use digital data in this country. And that's brilliant. It creates so many more opportunities for entrepreneurs uh, and business models. So, you know, I'm going to sort of... Uh focus and deep dive a little bit more about, uh, you know, you talked about the leapfrog going straight, yeah. you said from, you know, they'll move directly to digital products and they'll skip this entire um, bank in between, uh, you know. So, um, yeah, one of the things potentially that's driving that is uh, that the media that we consume here in yeah. India is actually leveling in some senses the kind of aspiration somebody has. So, you know, I see what uh, somebody else is consuming and, you know, I kind of want to have a little bit of that, but maybe I want it at a kind of a sachet price. Uh, Is is that an equivalent that you see in the finance world as well? I mean, is fintech also going to be sachet driven, uh, which is that, you know, instead of buying, you know, one uh, one large shampoo, I'm going to buy a sachet of shampoo, but I'll buy a fancy brand, uh, yes. which is what yep. anybody, you know, so, so anyone can afford that. I mean, is that a reasonable absolutely. description? No, absolutely. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. We use that terminology a lot. It used to be uh, in the old days of fintech, people used to say the democratization of finance. I, I think that's a bit dramatic. But yeah, the sachetization is definitely a terminology we use. Basically, it's saying, why do we think that we can't serve customers at the smallest price point brilliant financial experiences right and credit is the obvious one and that's obviously where we play meaning why can't you create a loan for a thousand rupees why can't you create a loan for for three thousand rupees it's not difficult given the technology infrastructure that we have today um, typically in the past banks couldn't create loans at say sub two lakh it didn't make sense. The unit economics didn't work. So like your shampoo bottle, you needed to be buying, you know, a home loan, you needed to get a house or you needed to get a two wheeler or something to make the economics add up. Or more sinister, you needed to be pushed into taking a credit card with which then kind of lulls you into shopping more than you needed to. We observed by doing a lot of data research that actually most of India needs really only a sachet size loan mostly a household needs about 20 to 30,000 rupees on average per annum in additional credit. And spread out over the year, to your point, that's really just, you know, maybe a 2,000 rupee a month extra cost. But that extra 2,000 rupees a month can unlock some enormous potential in your life, right? It can be the first laptop in a low-income family, which will allow their kids to get access to really excellent education. It can be an insurance product that finally provides health insurance for the family that previously meant they were going to be stuck with a huge hospital bill in case of an emergency. So we believe that this kind of satiation of of credit is actually going to smooth and enable a lot of households in this 
country that previously did not have that comfort blanket, right? It, in fact, being able to plan your finances is frankly a luxury of the wealthy still today. And we want to change that. So we started with credit. We are also now doing insurance, as I hinted at. And we'd love to satiaize wealth management as well, because most people do have an uneven cycle to their money, right? There will be times in the year where you may get excess cash. Diwali is a good example. A lot of people mm -hmm. come into money at this time, uh, bonuses and things like that. But then there's other times in the year where you're going to be spending more money, right? Maybe for a wedding or a, a hospital. And so having financial products that can evolve with that customer, but don't require a big ticket commitment is really the need of the hour. And that's exactly what technology is enabling and providers like Zest are building. So yeah, you, you nailed it. That's exactly right. So when you traveled to 50 countries when you were <laughs> uh, 25, what, what was the trigger for that? Tell me about it. I think like most entrepreneurs, um, I'm just obsessed and fascinated with people, right? It's, life is really just a long journey of learning um, and asking questions and being inquisitive. And the minute you stop wanting to do that, I think uh, you, you're not an entrepreneur anymore. So I spent my life, especially as a youngster, dreaming, dreaming about learning about human beings all over the world. And I also think I was really lucky to be brought up in a, in a family that had, you know, zero judgment. So a very open-minded mindset. My mother used to say, you could have been born anywhere in the world. Maybe, you know, you could have been born in India. Um, and that gives you the freedom to go and study the world and then decide where you want to make home. Um, and I did. <laughs> so here I am. And it's funny because when we were first raising money, sometimes investors would say, why do you want to live in India? You could live in New York. You could live in London. And I used to think that was so uh, biased of them because if I've traveled the world and picked my, my choice of home country, um, shouldn't they be excited for that, you know, and, and pleased that that's the country I chose. But unfortunately, a lot of people do want to move outside India. I hope that changes because um, there's just so much that's going to happen in the next 10 years in this country because of technology. And we're all going to be a part of that and see history being made. And that's just so exciting. Very few other countries in the world offer that which is history in the making and when was the first time you came into india and what brought you here actually um it's funny so even as a kid i was quite fascinated a part of uh, with hindi which films. had a big asian population and all the cinemas nearby played hindi movies which were typically cheap on sundays so we'd go and watch these hindi films and i'd get very uh, romantic and excited about india because who doesn't which was, the, which, was, Bollywood. which was the first movie that you remember? <laughs> well, the one I remember the most is the one that I watched, I think, 13 times. You can check with my mother. Uh, but that's a movie called Kuch Kuch Hota Hai, which right. is obviously uh, a phenomenon. Um, and I, uh, in, in fact, one of my best friends sang most of the soundtrack at my wedding. So there you go. <laughs> it's definitely my, one of my favorite films. But, you know, it left a real impression on me. And I think it leaves you with the romanticism, potentially. Um, and I think that then when I was old enough to travel on my own to Mumbai, uh, it wasn't a surprise that I fell in love with the city of dreams. Uh, I think I was in my mid-20s when I first came, just for a holiday, typical sort of backpacker type trip. 
uh, fell in love with Mumbai and then was very fortunate in, I think, my second or third job. Um, it, it caused me to travel to, to Mumbai every month or so. So I started to get to know the city better. Um, and then I was really lucky to make some good friends. And I think once you once you have good friends in a city, you get to see it from the inside. Uh, and that's when I, I realized, yeah, it was a permanent love affair. Not just w- was it anything like what you had imagined in the movie Kuch Kuch Hota Hai? But the reality very often is. <laughs> no. <laughs> very di- yeah, obviously there's always a difference between a movie and reality. But no, I think a lot of a lot of what I what I loved and still love about India is reality. Um, which is, you know, just a, a deep sort of uh, network of relationships. This is a country where your your family Family and your family can be your friends and your associates and your business family, but your family is everything, right? How well you relationship, uh, network, and how resourceful you are is a key determinant of your success. So if you're somebody that is a bit of an extrovert and loves to connect with people, I think it's a place you, uh, because it's very easy, very uh, quick to build those networks. We're in a business that's very much about B2B sales. We sell to banks, we sell to e-commerce companies um, and I've honestly never worked anywhere where it's so easy to make those connections people are incredibly forthcoming in making introductions doors are very open actually um, you'd be surprised how hard it is to to do the same type of networking uh, in in markets in Europe so yes I just think India is such a great place to to build a business and build a life and I hope more people start to think like that <laughs> Most of the times when you ask people what is it that a dreamer should be focusing on, uh, most people really talk about, you know, how do they find their dreams and they talk about product market fit, etc. But one thing which struck me about Lizzie's conversation was that she talked about uh, execution, that the dreamer needs to be execution oriented because until you actually try out something, you can never know whether it's going to work or not. And that I thought was a great takeaway for me. When you start to build your own dreamer organization, if you will, um, what was that like, Uh, you know, when you started to build Zest Money, you know, early days like? So I think we were really lucky with two things. One is um, product market fit. You know, almost on day one, our product made sense. And, And we knew, we kind of knew that would happen. But we were pleasantly surprised, I think, how easy it was, right? So we were one of the lucky ones. Immediately, customers, merchants, partners saw the value in what we were building. I think on another, the second point where we were lucky was on the capital raising side. So we were very fortunate to get almost our dream investor on day one, which was Ribbit Capital. Um, That's who we targeted. They signed up almost immediately. They saw value in what we were doing. Um, we, We were just really fortunate. We kind of hit the ground running. It's probably the one that we thought would be the easiest and that would be building a team. So we, you know, we deliberately moved our life to Bangalore. Not a single one of the three of us had any experience in Bangalore. We'd never lived there. Um, but we obviously were excited about the potential to build the best tech team we could. And we arrived probably a little bit naively, um, all sharing an apartment uh, and set about hiring, you know, this rock star team. And then we realized it's damn competitive. And it was a lot, lot harder and a lot more competitive than we realized. You know, I think we underestimated how many companies were fighting for the same pool of really awesome talent. Um, And therefore, we had to basically be the equivalent of a 
you know, a global company in order to attract that talent. So our bubble was burst in the early days, um, but luckily we made some really, really awesome key hires on day one. Uh, and like every startup, I think your initial hires are what build your your team and your culture and your referral network. So we're in a good place today. But yeah, that was the biggest shock, I think, how tough teams How did you manage? I mean, you say that you sort of uh, became more global in your approach. What, what was different about yeah. working for Zest Money? Yeah. Actually, it was that. It was exactly that. It was the global um, backdrop that a candidate would have. So first of all, obviously, all three of us had only worked all over the world, London, New York, Middle East. Um, we came with a genuinely global outlook and a obsession with diversity. And I think that was really unusual at that time. And diversity to us is not just, you know, gender. It's everything. It's it's literally nationality. It's age. So I think that was the the main kind of appeal. So I think we brought with us not just this focus on diversity, but a real global experience that no other team had had before. So we really, really um, focused on offering candidates a learning experience, and we realized in India that's very valuable. Being one of the only teams in the world that had actually built digital lending products for the world was unique, right, at that time. And so people would join us honestly just to learn, you know, what is fintech? What is digital lending? Um, what is AI? AI was very new at that time. And we could offer that learning experience. So I think for us, the early days, we couldn't pay much. We couldn't offer a fancy office. We couldn't offer fancy titles. Uh, we certainly weren't a unicorn, but we could offer a really nice culture, great uh, diversity of culture, and a learning experience. And ultimately, that's why most people joined us uh, in the early days. So is it reasonable to say that, uh, you know, when, when the dream organization is being built, you can make up with providing a much more disproportionate investment in learning as compared to, let's say, salaries? Is that uh, a fair thing to say? Or yes, absolutely. No, 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 no. I think it is. And I, and I don't think that's just in the early days, actually. It's really important, not just in the early days, but at all stages in a company's life cycle to compete on learning, actually. And I don't mean learning as in courses and, you know, learning and development learning. What I mean is really good, good, talented people always want to be developing, okay? And they want exposure to the best people and the best experiences. And so if you can compete by offering people that, and by the way, it's not just about, you know, oh, you'll learn what is FinTech. We also offer people the chance to learn what is leadership, to learn what is storytelling, right? We give people, um, so I think we've always believed that age is just a number and that people can be competent at all different points in their life. And so we're very happy and willing to have even the most junior people in the company take up significant responsibility. We will really enable, you know, young people to take positions that they would maybe not have had in a large organization. Another thing that's really important to us is not to grow uh, beyond the size that we need. So we're still only about 200 people today. And many companies of our revenue profile would be you know, maybe 10x that in, in number of headcount. But we believe that by keeping lean, we can actually give people a much more meaningful impact and exposure in their career. 
So I think that's another really important um, facet of the culture, which is, you know, no matter how many years of experience somebody has, they will have the opportunity to meaningfully impact the business, um, irrespective of their sort of level and tenure. So it's about having that very kind of flat and open and non-hierarchical approach as well. Um, And then I guess, you know, maybe finally just that we're very open-minded and non-judgmental and so it's very important that we seek ideas and inputs from everybody what that means is everybody has a voice what we've done is one thing is we created a pod structure within the team so every pod will have a business owner a product owner a technology uh, owner and then somebody from the operations or customer service team as well so let's say it's something like customer repayments there will be that deep bench of experts right down to the person who's on the call with the customer understanding their pain point to the deepest UPI expert, you know, in in the ecosystem. All of them will work together, joined up to design the best, best, best repayments experience. And it means that you've got, you know, a super sort of uh, sophisticated AI expert working day in, day out with the guy in the call center to really understand what is the pain point of the customer. And that means you get a completely diverse set of uh, experiences and exposure going into the solution. It makes us more customer centric, I think, than many technology companies that I know of. Um, And what we always say internally is, you know, technology and product solutions can be copied. So whilst we always have to have the best technology and the best product, that can't be the only thing that we excel at. We've also got to have the right attitude and culture and DNA across the organization to really represent, trust, and love the customer because that's actually the only sustainable advantage we have. Technology is easy to copy. That's very clear. But culture and the experience of working in a particular company is extremely unique to that organization. In fact, even in the same organization, if you spend a couple of years, and the organization has evolved, chances are that when you talk to the old timers, they will say this is a very different company from what it was. And yet, in the conversation that I had with Aditya Ghosh, which is in episode one, he talks about how Indigo managed to keep freshness in the culture while retaining a lot of the good things. That's a must listen, so check it out. But what I thought Lizzie spoke about really well the advantage of working in a startup is that the juniors get a chance to create a much more disproportionate sized impact. Uh, I like the example of what she said is that even in a 200 person company, the small pods which are there, these are these little groups in which it's possible for even a youngster to shine. And that is a great opportunity that only a startup can offer, only a dreamer can offer. So that was a great point. How have you come to that conclusion? How, what has shaped your worldview about this? And banks all over the world and what banks do well and what they don't do well. And one thing they do really well is obviously securely look after your money. Um, but one thing they don't always have time or, I guess, patience to do is deeply understand and love their customers, right? That's not the most obvious thing a bank CEO is going to talk about to his shareholders. How much does he love and trust his customers? So if you want to make an impact in that segment, if you want to be, you know, truly game-changing to the customer, just being, you know, secure and stable and, and looking after their financial situation is not enough. You've got to have a different, you know, mindset. You've got to have a different DNA. And so it sounds a bit wishy-washy, but I think it gets reflected in policies, 
product features, uh, even things like communications, right? So this style of which we will talk to the customer um, to do with their repayments. If you make a repayment on your credit card today, you'll get a notification, you know, thank you, we've received your repayment. If you repay your ZestDMI, we'll say, hey, thanks, you're a hero. You paid on time. We love that. Here's, you know, a coupon. We'll, we'll be so much more friendly and loving about the experience. Kind of internal DNA and culture, but it gets reflected in small, small, small product features, design facets, um, and policies at the end of the day. And that's what keeps customers happy and loyal and coming back for more. Because anybody can do the first transaction. How do you get the second, third, fourth, and that kind of repeat retained loyal customer that's that's the hardest bit what are some of the unusual things for which people uh, you know have struggled to find money to you know borrow money etc which they now have access to give me examples of that yeah i mean gosh it's deep 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 we find that there are so many segments coming online that need financing today you would be shocked it includes things like um, electric batteries that's a huge growing segment. We are one of the biggest finance partners to uh, the electric battery, electric bikes, solar panels. Um, we're a huge finance partner to EdTech. So many, many customers uh, are coming online for the first time, able to upskill and learn a new course only because financing is now available. So we're not just making people's dreams in terms of their you know, consumption patterns or their ability to now book a flight ticket. Those are the obvious things. But we are now taking, you know, a housewife who wants to become a maths teacher and she's able to achieve that dream because of our financing plans. So it's it's amazing. I mean, we're so lucky. Every single day we get kind of tingles down our spine about the impact that we can have um, on people. And, and, you know, I also say even giving somebody their first or, or second mobile phone, right, the best smartphone for somebody who hasn't been using a smartphone before is just the most life-changing and incredible experience. And there's, there's a huge amount of pride and impact that, that we can have even just enabling uh, the selling of, of smartphones. Um, so it's the, it, it, we're very lucky. Yeah, it's a great product to you know, meaningfully impact and uh, advance somebody's life every single day. You have uh, three co-founders and yet uh, there are enough and more organizations which have tried uh, having two co-founders and, uh, or, or two CEOs and it's yeah. not worked really too well. Um, but most recently, of course, Netflix uh, decided to bring on another uh, CEO, co-CEO model with Reed Hastings and yeah. uh, Ted Sarandon, uh, you know, so I guess... Uh, that's one model there, but you have three yeah. of them. It, how do you divide the work? I mean, who does what? What do you look after and what do your other co-founders look after? That's a really good question, actually. We don't get asked that enough. Um, so first of all, I'd say for it to work, and it does work really, really well, uh, there are two really essential components. One is a deep alignment on your core values, right? And it's absolutely critical that all three of you, or however many you are, share the same uh, mission and vision and ethical compass. If there's any divergence in those factors, it doesn't work. So we would regularly sit down in the early days and say, what is your dream for this business? Um, you know, for example, if we got offered uh, to be bought at this stage, would you carry on or would you sell, right? Have those discussions because if you diverge in your view of the world about critical things like that, it's not going to work. 
So that's, I think that's number one. We are deeply, deeply aligned um, in the way that we, it, like a good marriage in the way that we view the world and want to bring up our baby. Number two, though, is have a healthy, healthy and deep respect for each other's skill sets. And the great thing is the three of us are completely different in that way. So we're 100% aligned in our values and our vision, but we are 100% divergent in what we do best, even down to things like, you know, I'm this eternal optimist. Priya is very much the realist, sometimes the pessimist. But that's such a great balance in our business. Um, so it's really good. We never kind of step on each other's toes. We have a very simple delineation. I look after the growth side. So I think about it like my job is to put the accelerator on and Priya's is to put the brake on to make sure that we have, you know, the capital and the operating infrastructure to deliver. Uh, so she looks after the ops, the finance. I look after the growth, the marketing, et cetera. And then Ashish is the CTO. So everything stops with him because everything we do is powered by technology. I have no interest in being the CTO <laughs> and nor does Priya. And neither one of us really has any desire or interest to do each other's roles. So it's a nice, very simple delineation. I think everybody in the organization understands that. But we come together in all the things that matter most. And the other bit where we really, really come together and where alignment is so critical is on people and culture. Um, and again, I think it's funny because you might look at us and think, you know, we're three different people, but we have a very similar um, kind of ethical backbone, I would say, coming from our respective, you know, upbringings. And so the way that we, you know, think about the culture and the DNA and the type of people that we want around us is very similar, very aligned, very, very rare that we would say interview a candidate and not all come to the same conclusion. We will typically know, you know, within 10 minutes, whether this person is right for our culture or not. And that's because we're just very clear about, you know, who we are and what we are. And so, yeah, so it works really, really well. And I'm just so grateful. I don't know how people do this alone. I think the whole point of, you know, having co-founders is that it is like a marriage. You're in this together. You have a supporter all the time. You have a critic sometimes, uh, but you have someone that keeps you real um, and keeps you grounded and is just there for you. No matter how difficult things get, you know that you're in it together. Um, and we're, we're so lucky. Yeah. So couldn't have it any other way every organization should have a sense of ownership of the employees. There should be people who the employees can trust. So as you become larger and larger, as the organization becomes more complex, disproportionate amount of energy of the founders, of the leaders, uh, because by that time, hopefully the delegation has happened so that there are quite a few leaders. It's important that their ownership should actually, you know, go down to a lot of other people so that employees feel that no matter where they are in the organization, they have somebody who is in a position of authority and influence that they can trust. The second thing that I liked about the conversation was the love for the customer. You know, three things that really make a difference is the policies, the solutions and the communication. All three of them should be able to convey your love for the customer. And that is really something the three co-founders try to build in as a core value. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that all three of them seem to have different strengths. When you think about the future of fintech, what do you see as some of the places where you know it will evolve? What are some of the, those untapped opportunities? It's going to be a very, very interesting time in the next few years in fintech, especially in India. A huge amount 
is yet to happen. I still think we are day zero in the fintech journey. And I think the building blocks are being laid as we speak for enormous amounts of growth and exciting developments. Now, just to give you an example in our space in credit, a lot of the growth and penetration you've seen in credit in the last couple of years has really gone into the you know, urban metro dwelling young digital consumer. Very few companies have managed to make inroads into how do we do credit underwriting for the genuinely new to credit or those where they've been living in a complete cash economy, right, or a rural economy. Um, and that's what we really need to do in the next few years to get credit penetration to where we need it to be to drive economic growth. I think the other thing that we're going to see, uh, and you alluded to it, but it's the sachetization across the spectrum. So not just fixing payments and credit, but how do we create differential insurance products, differential savings products, um, differential you know, wealth and uh, fund management for these new segments? A lot of the financial products in this country have been designed for relatively wealthy, uh, as I say, urban dwelling, you know, income generating people. That's a small segment of the population. So there's a huge opportunity, um, but it requires quite dreamy <laughs> entrepreneurs, to use your word, uh, and a lot of faith from investors, actually, who, who need to back some of the less obvious build outs, right? It's very easy to back an app that's doing something that you've seen in the US or in another market. But some of the solutions we need in this market will be completely unique. There will be no global equivalent. And so we need investors that also have uh, that dreamer ability and frankly, a strong risk appetite, right? To, to genuinely back the more risky bets, um, but many, many of them will pay off, uh, is my opinion. One last question. What are some of the uh, uh, you know, unique characteristics of the Indian consumer, uh, you know, that you've learned, uh, you know, yeah. what are some of those things? Yes, many, many, many. Um, so I think there's a lot of cliches as well, and I'd like to burst some of those. Uh, one of the obvious ones everybody talks about is that this is, you know, a very sort of price-sensitive consumer. And, you know, people will do anything to save a few rupees um, and that, you know, People are uh, always looking for a cashback or a discount because they're so price sensitive. I take issue with that. I think that's a little bit patronizing. It's definitely more nuanced than that. Indian consumers are actually value sensitive, not price sensitive, in my opinion. They want value for money um, and they deserve it, right? They're very discerning. People are very, very smart in this country. They will not be tricked into spending money on stupid things. And that's a big difference to a lot of parts of the world where people will pay, you know, high fees for not very much. Uh, one of the brilliant things about this market is you can't, you can't trick the customer like that. And that's partly why products like ours are gaining traction because Customers don't like things like hidden fees. Once they realize that there's a product that has, you know, hidden fees or there's a catch, then they turn away quickly. And so that's great because you have a very, very discerning customer who will respond positively when you build a product um, that's designed for them. I think that's, that's one of the most obvious ones. I think the other, the other one that I always find, this is a very controversial one. But a lot of people like to say that India is a low trust society, right? And consumers don't trust brands and 
consumers don't trust each other and nobody trusts anyone. And I actually think it's almost the opposite. I think that consumers have a lack of trust in some kind of official structures, right? So perhaps they don't trust the the police or the government or some of the more official constructs uh, in society. But because of that, they're actually very discerning in who they do trust. And that means if you're a brand that delivers on your promise, you will find a very high degree of customer loyalty to your brand. Look at Tata. I mean, I sometimes joke they could, you know, they could sell like a speedboat and someone would buy it. People will do anything because they trust the brand. And so as an entrepreneur, as a business builder, this is actually a brilliant, brilliant market to really test yourself because you will get rewarded with customer loyalty if, if you bring value to that customer, right? So you can, you can win in the short term by giving cashbacks or discounts or whatever. But in the long term, if you combine these two factors, one is this is a value conscious customer. Two is this is a customer who will trust people who deliver on their promises. Then you have an opportunity to build incredible value in the long run. And I think more, more entrepreneurs should believe in that uh, and focus on building, you know, really, really good sustainable products and businesses because this is not a customer who's stupid. They're very savvy. And they will understand that if you're in it for the long run, if it's genuinely a partnership, you have an opportunity to build something of immense value for this consumer. Um, one last question is, uh, you know, when you look at uh, uh, this year, you know, has it been uh, a sort of a, you know, uh, how has it shaped your business and what's your outlook and prediction for 2021? Yeah, so it's obviously been the, the uh, the least expected year ever. I love looking back at the, all the planning we did for 2020 and how it's all gone out of the window. But it's also been the best year ever in teaching us a lot of lessons, all of us, right? Personal and professional and business lessons. The great thing is, and, and the best lesson or the best learning of all has been that if you focus on the long term and if you are really building a sustainable long-term business, frankly, six months or nine months doesn't actually matter, right? I think we've all been set back by, by six or nine months, but nothing's actually fundamentally changed. And if anything, we believe the need for what we do, and especially the way that we do it by embracing technology and doing everything in a completely uh, non-touch, you know, digital way, is just deeper than ever. And so actually our ambition and our kind of level of desire to, to grow and impact as many people as possible has just risen just insurmountably. So we're really excited for next year. It will definitely be the year of fast digital adoption. We are sure of that. We're seeing every trend uh, going that way. Um, and I think it could be the year of the consumer. I think finally brands will have to deliver on, on what they've promised and you will see much more focus on how do you, you know, win back uh, and make your customers happy. And that's what we're really good at. So we are very excited for 2021. <laughs> well, I think uh, you are spot on because, you know, if you think about India, 70% of uh, the customers that you are looking at, they are potentially in your tier two, tier three, tier four kind of cities. And when yeah. you offer them something with, which has got the intersection of uh, mobile and digital banking and AI, if you sort of put that together, I think it's a winning combination. So all the very best for your dreams. And uh, I hope that, you know, uh, you will continue to be 
uh, one of those growth stories that we will look back on and say, oh, yes, I mean, we had Lizzie on our show, uh, you know, in that year. So (laughs) thank you so much. I think with your blessing, uh, that's very possible. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you and uh, take care. Many organizations talk about the fact that uh, it is not a great idea to have two co-founders running the place because two CEOs um, or, you know, a bunch of people who are taking decisions very often leads to a certain amount of chaos. One person wants to focus on something, the other tries to focus on something, which at some sense makes sense, but, you know, it is very easy for people to get it wrong. In the case of Zest Money, three co-founders, all of them have a tremendous degree of respect for each other. Language is not the reason why they come together, but it's the complementarity that they view. If one is optimistic and is a bit naive, the other understands the complexity of the scenario. And I think that is the reason for the success of any organization that wants to move from being a dreamer to a unicorn to a market shaper. So until the next time, keep thinking about what Lizzie had to say and tell me if you think that's a great way to build the organization that you are in. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at abhijitbhaduri at life.com, which is A-V-H-I-J-I-T-B-H-A-D-U-R-I, abhijitbhaduri at life.com, or you can tweet to me at abhijitbhaduri or follow me on LinkedIn. So don't forget to tune in every Wednesday. Dreamers and Unicorns 2.0 has been produced by HT Smartcast. To give it a listen, log on to htsmartcast.com or huh, अरे सुनिए जरा नए नजरिए से क्या फिर मिलते हैं जल्दी This was an HD Smartcast original HD Smartcast